I'm going to share a truth. I think it's so simple and I think it's so familiar that really there's a danger attached to it. We uh, have gotten so familiar with it and the talk of it that we don't practice it. In this passage here, Mark chapter 11, we find Jesus Christ cleansing the temple. That's the expression we use. And ironically, it's found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to look at it here in Mark 11 because I want to point out some things from this uh, issue of it or this scenario as recorded by Mark. I'd like to talk today about the house of prayer. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, if you would, in the 11th chapter, Mark chapter 11. I'm going to be a bit abbreviated today. Uh, by design, I, I, I want to leave some time at the end of the message here. I'm going to share a truth. I think it's so simple, and I think it's so familiar that really there's a danger attached to it. We, we uh, have gotten so familiar with it and the, the talk of it that we don't practice it. And I'm going to be talking about prayer. In this passage here, Mark chapter 11, we find Jesus Christ cleansing the temple. That's the expression we use. And ironically, it's found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to look at it here in Mark 11 because I want to point out some things from this, uh, this uh, issue of it or this scenario as recorded by Mark. Mark 11, beginning in verse number 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer or allow that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. I'd like to talk today about the house of prayer. The house of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now to help us to listen carefully. Father, we've read this passage, but we have never probably carried over the truth of it to this church and us, this house, at this era and time. And, and Father, the practice of prayer. Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to listen carefully and speak to our hearts and do something in our prayer lives. And Father, change our church and our homes as a result. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read this account, we find a strange portrait of Jesus Christ, don't we? We can picture him in kindness, taking five loaves and two fishes and multiplying them and, and feeding 5,000 people. And we go, wow, that's the Jesus I know. The Jesus I know would, would hug children and he'd take them up onto his lap and he would say, suffer the little children to come unto me. The Jesus we like is the one who attended weddings and uh, attended funerals even and broke them up. And, and, and the Jesus we love is the one who preached on the Sermon on the Mount and taught so many golden nuggets or raised the 
dead daughter of Jairus back to life, or the widow's son at Nain back to life, or rescued Peter as he's sinking out there on the Sea of Galilee. But in our wildest dreams, we really don't picture Jesus Christ as getting rough. I mean, he's the good shepherd. He's the Lamb of God. That's how we picture him. The lily of the valley and, and the rose of Sharon. But here, in Mark 11, he's the lion the lion of the tribe of Judah. He, he tore it up. I mean, with authority. He went into the temple and he, he overthrew the, the, the tables of the money changers. He drove out the animals. He drove out the people. And he said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. I'm sure his apostles even wondered, wow. And, and they were passive. We don't read anything about them. Probably just standing by going, huh, what, what's gotten into the Savior here? What's gotten into the Master But he's saying, get this stuff out of here and get it out of here right now. God himself, the loving Jesus, irate. He's obviously irate. Now, you stop and you say, boy, did he just lose his temper? Well, no, that's impossible. Well, was he in the the spirit? Oh, yeah, he, he always was in the spirit. In fact, in verse 11, I find this interesting. It says the day before that Jesus entered into the temple or into Jerusalem and into the temple, And when he had looked round about upon, notice, all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Bethany was just a few miles away. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. It's the day before he cleanses the temple. And you might read that and go, why is that inserted in Mark's account here? Well, because I'm sure it was at that time he looked around, he he decided what he was going to do the next day. For whatever reason, it wasn't the time. But he saw this, this merchandise going on how they had secularized the sacred. And he thought about it, I'm sure, that night, and he knew exactly what he was going to do in the Spirit the next day. And by the way, this isn't the only time he cleansed the temple. This isn't the only time it happened. We find an account in John, I think John chapter 2, where he attended the wedding feast of Cana and started performing miracles and so on and so forth. But in John chapter 2, at the very beginning of his ministry, he went in, and that's where it says he even made a whip and a scourge, and he, he used it on the people. And he tore up the place. But then, at the end of his ministry, the same junk had sifted back into the temple there, and he had to do the same thing all over again. The standard had drifted. Isn't that just like human nature? Those of you who have raised children, you know that you can make a policy, you can put a rule in place, and if you don't repeat it in about a mm, few weeks, it kind of just blows away, you know? Because it hasn't been reinforced and it hasn't been held up and it kind of just somehow goes away. And that's true in a home, that's true in a church as well. We find out that he had laid down the law before and he had gone in and he'd physically thrown this stuff out of the temple. But now, at the end of his ministry, maybe about three years later, He has to go in and he has to do the exact same thing. Now, here's what's interesting. They were selling animals in the temple. Now, let me just say this. That wasn't all unorthodox. That wasn't all bad because the people came to Jerusalem to sacrifice animals. And they needed an animal sacrifice. And to haul this animal from however many miles all the way to Jerusalem, that was very tough and And so they would come to town, they would buy an animal, and they would have that animal sacrificed. But I think the selling of the animals not only had moved from the outside of the temple right into the temple, the outer court, but I think also, according to historians, they were selling those animals at inflated prices. 
I mean, they were hiking it up, taking advantage of the, the people. And if you were a friend of the Pharisees, you had an in. I mean, it was to the highest bidder, whoever uh, would lick the boots and, and do the favors and make the deals under the table with the Levites and the scribes and the Pharisees, they would get to sell their animals and bring it right into the temple. It's like parking at a ball game in the Twin Cities. The closer you get to the stadium, the higher the price goes up. And boy, right inside the temple, whoa, that was prime place there. In fact, we find out in verse number 18, after this happened, that the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. They were ticked at Jesus. He was cutting into their business. They were no doubt making money off of this. Now, secondly, not only those who were selling the animals are mentioned, but the money changers are mentioned. Have you ever wondered what the difference is? Notice with me, if you would, in verse 15. It says, And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers. Well, when you got to Jerusalem, the curriculum or the, uh, the uh, denominations changed, if you will, the, the coinage. The coins were minted in Jerusalem to be used in Jerusalem. And you actually had to uh, exchange your money, much like you do if you go into Canada or Mexico or a foreign country. They had to uh, pay for the animals, but before they could buy them, they had to exchange their currency for this special money minted in Jerusalem at the temple to buy the animals. So now you've got the money changers, they're making their cut. And they're having a high exchange of, of rate, and they've hiked up the profits and so on and so forth. Not only that, but there's something else going in the temple. The shortest point from A to B is a straight line. The temple was really in the way of everything. And so they had adopted the practice of, of carting stuff straight through the temple to get from point A to point B. Let me show what I mean by that. In verse 16, it says, And he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. They were just toting stuff through the temple. Oh, this is the shortest route. It's kind of like, have you ever noticed where you got a sidewalk that makes a 90-degree turn? What you find in that corner? Dirt, not grass. Why? Well, I can save a step or two by cutting across the grass from the concrete here. We have it going on over there near the nursery door. There's just something about human nature. I'm going to take the shortest route. I'm going to take the shortcut. Well, through the temple was a shortcut. And people were just kind of da-da-da-da-da, carrying their vessels in, in and going through and passing out. And he said, stop that. He would not suffer any man to carry their vessels through the temple anymore. He, he said, enough. And uh, so the house of God had become a shortcut and literally had become a joke. And the work of the temple was being carried out, but in the wrong manner. They had taken the spiritual and they had secularized it. It was no longer sacred anymore. And, and really, there is a lesson here for all of us. Now, may I challenge us, when we serve the Lord, it's not if we serve the Lord, it's more how we serve the Lord. How are we serving God? How are we doing God's work? You know, Paul even mentioned somebody that was preaching Christ of contention. You remember reading that? Not sincerely, but uh, competing with Paul. Can you imagine how you get any more loserish than that? His name, by the way, is not recorded in the Bible. Paul's name is recorded over and over again. Paul said, really, I don't care. At least the word of God is being preached and souls are being won. But God looks at the heart. God looks at the motive. And, and when we get mechanical in God's work, and like the Jews in the temple, just do-do-do-do-do, just kind of going along, and it's business as usual, it becomes a sham. 
The operation of the temple in the first century had become a sham. And they'd lost the spirit of the whole thing. And they'd really gotten inoculated. They didn't even realize what had happened. And it really should come home to us in this century with the question, am I doing this for God's glory? Okay, I'm serving the Lord. I'm teaching a Sunday school class. But is it mechanical? Am I doing it with heart? I'm singing in the choir. I'm, I'm singing a special. But is it for God's glory? I'm working the bus ministry. I'm working in the nursery. But how and why? It's really more important than if we're doing what we're doing. It's why we're doing it. The, the house of God in the first century had lost its purpose. And it was a joke, really. And so we find out in our text here that Jesus comes to Jerusalem, goes into the temple, begins to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple. Notice, picture him overturning the, cha- the tables of the money changers. Coins flying everywhere there. And him casting out their seats and getting rid of the doves, and he wouldn't allow anyone to carry stuff through the temple. He said, stop this. Why? In verse 17, he said, it is written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. Now, where did he get that? Well, if you would, turn back to Isaiah chapter 56, and I will show you what our Savior was quoting because he knew the Bible. And this text is actually found back in Isaiah 56, and that's why he said it is written. He's quoting something that had been previously written here. In Isaiah 56, notice with me, if you would, verse number 7. Even them, God's talking, even them will I bring to my holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar for mine house shall be called and house of prayer for all people. I've underlined those words in my Bible. Mine house shall be called an house of prayer. So what is the point of the house of God? What's the thrust of the local church in this day and age? What, what's the impetus? What is the purpose? What is the objective? What is the point? Why do we have a church here? Well, we think a number of things. Obviously, when we think of why church, and I've talked about them, uh, of course, the church is the beachhead for world evangelism. We, we've been given the Great Commission, right? We're to, to preach the gospel to every creature and then uh, disciple them, baptize them, and so on and so forth. And you say, well, that's the purpose of the church. Well, it's one of them. What is the real purpose of the church, though? You say, well, um, it is to hold church services. Well, we do that, but that's not the main purpose of the church. You say, well, preaching. Well, no question about it. The house of God ought to be a house of preaching. But that's not what Christ called it. You say, how about singing? Singing's important. Music is important. It'll never have the place preaching does here. But it's very, very important. But Christ did not say, my house shall be a house of music, did he? You say, what's the purpose of the church? Is it to give and tithe in? Well, that's one of the things we do here. But he did not say, my house should be called a house of giving. He said, he did not say my house should be called, called a house of training. I just spent an hour and I've been talking all week with the college students and we're training them. But that's not what the church is for. Jesus never said it's to hold service, to make friends, to have fellowship. He did not say my house should be a house of fellowship. Now, I'm not against any of those things. But the house of God is to be a house of prayer. 
the aroma of the prayers of the saints ought to be going up from this house. Now, this church, Fargo Baptist Church, is not a, a substitute temple. I'm not making that point. There was one geographical spot on the whole earth where the temple was to be located. I think the present-day Mosque of Omar or the Dome of the Rock fills that place. You'll find the Wailing Wall there. There was a place there where they held the Holy of Holies and, and all that got destroyed by Titus and has never been rebuilt, but one day it will be rebuilt. But today, the temple of God is you. If you're a Christian, in fact, you need not turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 3 and in verse 16, it says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. So you're the new temple of God. But there is a designated place, if you will, in the New Testament that is now the house of prayer, I think, and it's the local church. The local church is to be a house of prayer. It's not where we come to hear the choir or have activities. I'm not against any of those things. But the church initially was born out of prayer. And I want to show you that. Look in Luke chapter 6, if you would. Luke chapter 6. The church actually was started by our Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry after an entire night in prayer. Have you ever prayed through the night? We find our Savior doing it. In Luke chapter 6, you say, wow, something important must have been, been about to happen. Well, it was. In Luke chapter 6 and in verse number 12, it says, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he called apostles. Now there was evidently more than twelve, but he had to whittle it down. And he wanted the mind of his heavenly Father on it. These twelve men would make up the first church. You say, well, pastor, I've heard the church start on Pentecost. Well, we've discussed this before. There was a church in operation before Pentecost. They were doing everything a church does. They were winning souls. They were baptizing converts. They were holding the Lord's Supper service. They even had a treasurer. They held business meetings. They sang in the, the midst of the church. And, and there's so much evidence in the New Testament that the church started during the earthly ministry of Christ. And this is when I believe it started. When he called out, and that's what ecclesia means, his church, these 12 men, and he said, come follow me. I'm going to especially work with you fellas. And so we find him starting the church here after an all-night prayer meeting. I'm talking about prayer. Now look in Acts chapter 1, if you would. Later on, we find that our Savior has gone to the cross. He's rose bodily from the grave. And here in Acts chapter 1, we find him ascending up into heaven. And all of a sudden, there's the eleven minus Judas, and, and they're watching him ascend up into heaven, kind of feeling orphaned, wondering, what do we do now? Well, what did they do? They went back to the upper room, and you know what they did. They prayed. Here in Acts chapter 1 and in verse number 14, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And so they went back to that upper room and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed for 10 days, as far as we know. And then you get to chapter 2 and it says in verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. In other words, they're on the same page. They were in agreement. Why? 
because they had been praying together. A church that prays together stays together. And we find out they're in one accord, they're in unison. And we find out now the day of Pentecost takes place and thousands get saved. And it jumpstarts the church. Why? Because of prayer. Look in Acts chapter 3, if you would. Acts chapter 3. In verse number 1, the Bible says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And we find out they go to pray. That was something they did every single day. They didn't have a building yet, but naturally, where are we going to pray? Well, we're just going to go to the temple. We're going to pray in the temple there. Look in Acts chapter 4. In this particular chapter, we find a crippled man healed. And boy, it creates a, uh, quite a fuss amongst the people there in Jerusalem. In verse number 18, it says, And they called them, that is the disciples, and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. They get threatened and told not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. What do they do? Notice in verse number 21, it says, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. They let them go, and in verse number 23, it says, In being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which has made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that is in them is. And they go on, and the rest of it is, is just word after word of prayer here. And they sustain that local church in that first century there through prayer. Notice, if you would, turning in Acts to uh, actually First Timothy, that uh, prayer is a priority. It's mentioned as a first. By the way, when they were threatened... They didn't go squeal to the Romans. They didn't file a lawsuit. They didn't take them to court. They didn't use any carnal methods. They prayed. Instinctively, when challenged, they prayed. When in trouble, they prayed. Now, you and I can talk about praying, and, and we can make some kind of a mental assent to say, well, yeah, yeah, we need to pray. But in the first century, it meant something. It meant something. In fact, when Saul of Tarsus got converted, we find out that Ananias was afraid to go near him, and God said, don't worry about him. In verse 11 of chapter 9, God said to him, he prayeth. He's praying now. And, and, and Ananias said, okay, he must be a Christian. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, notice we find this in verse 1. The apostle says to Timothy, the pastor, he says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Notice the word first. He says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. That's a sign of a real church. They are a praying church no less. Have we lost that? Have we lost that? Are we a praying church? Is this a house of prayer? Is this a house of prayer on Wednesday night after the midweek service? Is this a house of prayer on Sunday mornings about 9, 10, 
when we have the men gather to pray there and the women to gather there? Can we honestly say it's a house of prayer? Now, I'm, I'm all for fellowship, but I have eyes. I see what goes on. Christ said, my house should be called of all things, of all things, a house of prayer. Are you involved in church prayer? Or you say, well, I'm involved in activities, I sing, I do this, I do that. That's not what I ask. Are you involved in prayer? In Acts chapter 2 and verse number 42, the Bible tells us that when they got saved and they got in the church, they continued in prayer. They continued in prayer. Have we slipped in that area? Because you know what prayerlessness is? It's pride. That's what it is. It is saying, we don't need God. You know, the church at Laodicea had gotten to that point. They thought they had arrived. And Christ rebuked them. He said, thou sayest thou art rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. He said, what you don't know is that you're wretched and empty and poor and blind and naked. They had gotten so proud, they had quit praying. They didn't need God anymore, at least in their mind. You know, when this church stops praying, we stall out. We go into a holding pattern. At the very least, we slip. Have we slipped? Now, we can use every device imaginable to get people in through these doors. And honestly, I've been told this around town, there's not a church in this town that is doing as much to reach out to people be it through door-to-door, be it through the bus ministry, the radio ministry, the the, uh, Bible college, the faith for life, and on and on and on it goes. And we could pat ourselves on the back saying, boy, we're doing everything we can to get people into church. We can use every device we can to get people in, but that's not what the first century church did. You know what they did first and foremost? You know what they did. They prayed. They prayed. The, the, the early church was a praying church. The church of the dark ages was a praying church. There was not a great revival, but that it did not start in the annals of time with prayer, and it ended when prayer waned and kind of dropped off. And we can talk about the great revivals of Finney and Moody and Sunday and the Great Awakening and the New England Revival. They all were spawned by prayer. It wasn't music. It wasn't even preaching. It was prayer. It was always preceded with prayer. I think the greatest thing that any Christian in this building can do is pray. Is pray. Are we praying? You know, if the uh, Rochesters came to town and, and it's Friday or Saturday night, we said they're going to give a concert, it'd fill this place up. If it was a Friday or Saturday night, we said, folks, let's get together and have a prayer meeting. I really wonder how many folks would be here. I think we've placed the priority on something that God has not placed it on. And what a difference we could make in the FM area. What a difference we could make in this county. I, I, I believe we could make a difference in this state and in our nation if we would get back to prayer. We have more people turning to crack cocaine than Christ and other vices taking place and just taking over our country, and we're going backwards. And let me just say this, preaching and teaching is not going to do it alone, and I'm a big advocate of that. I take it very seriously. 
But that by itself is not going to do it. You know, we can read tons of books on, on how to raise kids, but are we praying for them? We can read all these how-to-do books on how to have a successful marriage. Are we praying for our marriages? I'm saying the, the missing ingredient is prayer, and this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Is this a house of prayer? A church that prays together does stay together. And I do believe the reason that they were in one accord back in the early days is because they were praying. It's really hard to fuss with somebody you pray with, isn't it? It's hard to feud with somebody that you're praying with. It's no coincidence that prayer and being in one accord go together. Look in Hebrews chapter 4, if you would. You know, it's possible in in our American culture in this century to create a religion of our own. And I'll just say that in many services, everything goes on except praying. And we say, "What's, what's wrong with this picture here? Notice in Hebrews 4 and in verse number 14, the Bible says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are told to come boldly before the throne of grace to petition our God for those needs that we have and to find grace in the process. I think the worst epitaph that could be possibly written for any church is, it used to be a praying church. It used to be a praying church. Jesus said you have not because you ask not. And if I might use an electrical term, prayer is the conductor between us and our God, isn't it? It is the one conductor between us and God. It's prayer. And I believe so much is forfeited because we don't use it. I I believe that we never realize what we could have had. It'll never be uh, materialized. We hit stone walls in our Christian life and we get frustrated. Somebody so well said years ago, every problem in the life of a Christian really is a prayer problem. It's a prayer problem. It's, it's not methods, folks, that'll get the job done. It's not technology, and I'm all for that kind of stuff. It's not organization. It's not plans and procedures. It is the living God. The living God. And getting a hold of Him. We see Jesus coming into the temple. The disciples are showing them how impressive it is. Man, look at these columns. Look at these pillars. Look at this cedar. Look at this gold. Jesus is not looking at any of that. He sees what's going on in there, and it's really bothering him. He goes back to Bethany for the night. He knows exactly what he's going to do the next day. The next day he comes in, he begins to turn the tables over and to drive the animals and the people out, not allow anyone, hey, trying to pass through. No, that's not what the temple's for. He's adamant about this. There's something that he's passionate about. What's he doing? He's bringing an end to the mockery of the house of God. What is he saying? What is he saying? Well, we find out back here in our text, in Mark chapter 11, you need not turn there, But it's very important we remember what he said. He said, it is written in verse 17, My house 
shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. God help us to make this house of God a place of prayer. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.